Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of Graveyard Coffee Talk. We're your hosts, Amanda and Corinne, and we are back to recording in person, but not in front of a live studio audience, so it will, there won't be a laugh track for us this time, which was, do you know how nice it was to know, like, we're funny? People think we're really funny. It's not just you and me laughing at our own jokes. And it wasn't just our friends in the audience. Like, there were people I've never seen before in my life. There were four people we didn't have some connection to. I know. Crazy. Absolutely wild. It was a blast. So much fun. Um, So, yeah. We went to Heine Brothers, which I know we've mentioned on the show before. um, Mostly because it is right by Corinne's house where we record. And I got an entirely too large, and I don't care, creamy chocolate cold brew uh, that tastes like chocolate milk. Nice. I got one of their Christmas specials. It's the creamy cookie cold brew. It's pretty good. It tastes very sugar cookie. Sugar cookie Uh huh. English. I speak it. I can't guarantee I do, so you're fine. <laughs> It's my native language. Yay. But you can't tell. Um, but yeah, the coffees are good. Coffees are good. Uh, Amanda helpfully reminded me that I needed to pull a uh, tarot card before we started. I mean, it's only our, what, gosh. 44th, 45th? Something like that episode. Uh, I can't count. We've only been doing it for every single episode except for one live show that we're, we forgot. Um. We don't talk about that. Yeah. Anyway. So. Anyway, I am back pulling from the Moon Prison Tarot deck because it was the first one I found when Amanda said, hey, Corinne, hey, Corinne, where's your tarot card? And I said, uh-oh, <laughs> uh-oh. So anyway, I pulled The Hanged Man. And this is one of those ones where, like, girl, let that shit go. Just release the bad shit into the universe. Give yourself a chance to have some peace, to grow. That card is so rude because I feel like I operate best out of spite. And I know that that's actually false and that spite only, like, makes me angrier. But sometimes I feel like that anger makes me stronger. Listen, I have a French degree and a black belt out of spite. (laughs) These were my driving forces. Got mad at a Spanish teacher in high school? Majored in French. Had a gym teacher told me I was never going to be able to touch my toes? Got a black belt in Taekwondo. I love that. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. Yeah. No, I operate 99% of the time purely out of spite. Well, uh, this deck is telling us not to do that. Well, I don't accept that. Well, maybe if you ever watched Sailor Moon... You would learn that you should listen. Do not! Do not drag the fact that I'm a failure of a weeb in my face. I have to every time you pull from this deck. 
it was gifted to me. I did not buy it. <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. Anyway, Amanda, Amanda, what's our topic today? All right. So, uh, you know, it, oddly, given the year I've had, I'm super excited about this topic because, you know, we all cope in our own ways. Um, this month, we are covering rituals and superstitions surrounding death. Um, yay! But also, actually, yay, because this was a really cool thing to research. This was really fun. Um, it, I will, though, at the top of this, you know, I know Corinne and I have both had really rough years in this realm. Um, we are definitely not the only people <laughs> who have. So, if at any point anything that I'm saying in this research hits too close to home... Tap out. Tap out. Let, you know, I, we will not be offended. Hey, if... hey, the cards told us to let that shit go. Mm-hmm. And if this is something that you need to let go and say, no, nah, this is not for me, we're not offended. Um, and then as an extra heads up, uh, because I know this could be way too fresh for a lot of people, um, I will be mentioning COVID and COVID funeral practices mm, okay. uh, towards the end of my segment. So just... Blanket warning there. Will not be offended if you don't listen. Will not be offended if you turn the episode off or skip forward to Corinne's segment. Um, Maybe just turn it off. I don't get into that, but we are we are going on a tour, and I will be mentioning plagues. Just, you know. All right. An older one. You know. Yeah, the famous one. Um, a color in the title. But anyway, all that aside, serious stuff done. Yay. Uh, for this episode, I am sourcing from an article uh, from theconversation.com titled The Pandemic Changed Death Rituals and Left Grieving Families Without a Sense of Closure. Super. Um, an online exhibit from the William Clements Library at the University of Michigan titled So Once We Were, Death in Early America. Okay. And an essay collection that I found through Utah State University. Um, Corinne, you're going to love this title. Titled Of Corpse. <laughs> Death and humor in folklore and pop culture. Oh, it's such a bad pun, <laughs> but I actually appreciate that one. It got me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was a visceral reaction right there. <laughs> I knew it would. Um, plus, it was just fun to read through. Um, definitely recommend mm-hmm. checking that one out because I, I very briefly pull from one essay from that. Nice. Um, but I devoured the whole thing. Nice. So... Uh, we are going to start today. I wrote, so we can start today. <laughs> like, I need permission. Uh-huh. It's fine. We're fine. Everything's fine. Uh, in colonial America. Okay. Uh, so life was rough and a long life was not a guarantee. Mm-hmm. Uh, deaths from war, smallpox, cholera, uh, really high rates of suicide and incredibly high rates of infant mortality were part of everyday life for everyone. Yes. Including children. Yes. And uh, what do parents do when we need to prepare children to deal with difficult topics? Lie? Uh, no. And... (laughs) No? There's a reason I'm not a parent. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if you're me, or apparently early American parents, you turn to books to find the language to deal with things. That makes more sense than lying. Uh, So let us turn to The New England Primer, An Easy and Pleasant Guide to the Art of Reading. First published in the late 
I can talk. First published in the late 16th century, this primer was the go-to book for early readers. Great. Um, and the woodcut images and associated text for learning letters were <laughs> interesting. You know, I read Witch of Blackbird Pond as a child, I can imagine. Uh, and definitely age-appropriate, as we understand the term now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what child doesn't want to hear... T is for time cuts down all, great and small. Or X is for Xerxes, the great did die, and so must you and I. I mean, at least it rhymes. Or Y is uh, Y is for youth forward slips, death soonest nips. The fuck? <laughs> the what? Oh, yeah. So the online exhibit that I mentioned is where I got this from. And there are actual scans of the woodcut images next to it. I fully believe all of this. But my point stands. What? And I repeat, the fuck? So the way I understand it from what I was reading throughout the research, death wasn't this sterile process handled externally from your family every family was dealing with death at a more constant rate than most of us at least in the west can really fathom now with modern medicine and modern funerary practices i I, I read um smoke gets in your eyes Mm -hmm. last last year yeah, because my sisters and I were talking about it at a funeral, which was trippy as shit. You know. <laughs> hey, Trisha's the one who recommended it. And if Patricia recommends the book, I'm going to try reading it. Uh-huh. She reads like five books a year. Drag your sister. Okay. No, I she, I know she doesn't have a lot of time to read. Mm-hmm. So when she does recommend a book, I'm going to listen. Yeah. Um. So... It- you know, looking at this through a modern lens makes things feel kind of like, what the fuck? Yeah. But if you look at things historically, historically, and through, you know, the contemporary lens of the time, it makes sense. You want kids to have the language to process what they are seeing. It's the same reason that, you know, kids books now are you know we've got one for my son about uh school performance anxiety mm-hmm. how do you deal if you are the last one in your class to figure something out or how do you deal with you know a new sibling or all of the things that can show up in an average child's life at this point in time death was pretty common yeah no i Logically, it makes sense, but my modern ass is still going, huh, that's... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's... Reading the woodcuts when I was doing this research felt like a slap in the face at times. I'm sure. Um, And you also had things like Sally Gilbert's penmanship book, which showed up later. It was in the 1800s. And like modern handwriting guides, it had children practice writing the same lines over and over and over. Yeah, makes sense. And an example of a line that both teaches penmanship basics and gives children a glimpse at the icy death that comes for us all (laughs) was, death summons all men to the grave. Okay. Literally, that was a line recommended 
to small children to write over and over and internalize. I mean, it's not quite as snappy as the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog or Sphinx of Black Quartz, Hear My Vow. <laughs> I love that one. It, it lives rent-free in my head, which is why I could just pull that off. Uh-huh. But, um, yeah, okay, sure. That's, I know what I'm going to be practicing next time I do calligraphy. Mm-hmm. And again, there was a, a scanned image from the book, and whoever was writing that line over and over had impeccable cursive. Ugh. So it worked. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I see no way this could lead to long-term anxiety issues for anyone. No, definitely not. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have called it anxiety anyway. And then uh, this is one that both fascinates me and like i i have a visceral like reaction okay um as we've established death was a regular part of life yeah before the advent of modern medicine and with the advent of the camera we suddenly had access to another way to cope with grief i hate those so much do you remember the movie the others Uh uh-huh i had nightmares for three weeks I believe that. And uh, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, I'll finish the sentence. Sorry. Sorry. I have such a visceral reaction to this. It's so bad. Um, Post-mortem photography. (laughs) And again, to modern sensibilities, the idea of posing a loved one's corpse and taking a picture to carry around with you seems macabre at best and like, at worst. Uh, But between 1839 and all the way through to the 1930s, It was a very important step to the mourning process for many families. Um, Proximity to death was a a regular part of life. How many times can I say that this episode? So many. Mm -hmm. And, you know, frankly, people spent significantly more time around corpses than we do now. Um, You know, preparation of the body for a lot of human history was handled by the family yes. or by the community. It wasn't handled by a professional. Yeah. I'm actually going to be talking about that a little bit in my section too. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, look at us. Synchronicity. I know. We've been doing this for two years or something. <laughs> something. So, especially for, you know, the tragic cases of infant or child death, a family may not have any photographs mm-hmm. of that relative. Um, and it's been compared to what happened even earlier historically before the invention of the camera, where people would, it, people who had the means would commission paintings and, you know, woodcuts or some sort of artistic representation of yeah. a loved one who had passed. The advent of photography, um, especially as you get to like the 1850s, 1860s, made that more accessible Mm -hmm. to people who did not have the means to commission anything. Um, So it really worked more as like a way to equalize what was seen as a cultural like status symbol way of grieving. Um, it kind of reminds me in some ways, you know, people will make like memorial shirts mm-hmm. after someone has passed. 
it, it feels like, I feel like that's kind of like the next step in the evolution. Obviously, it's much easier to have photos of people while they're alive now. Right. But like, you've got that shirt with like, you know, the end memoriam with the mm-hmm. birth and death dates. That was one. I wanted to do a little more research into that um, and just ran out of steam. It yeah. wasn't even a time thing. It was a mental health thing. Um, because I was curious about that as an evolution of this, or if it was one of those like convergent yeah. things that rose up. What is the word I'm looking for? Um, independently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yes, we're on, we're on the same page there. Um, and so now I would like to move on to some more modern American attitudes towards death with graveyard humor. (laughs) Um, So as Richard Meyer writes in Of Corpse, quote, death may not be funny, but people often are. And it is the human response to this rite of passage, sometimes collectively, most often individually, that we find the basis for much of what we call death-based humor. Okay. So when you look at the earliest grave markers in colonial communities in America, and many even now, it's bare bones information. You have a name, you have a date of birth, you have a date of death. Yes. Done. And in the late 1600s, you start to see more elaborate flourishes, some more artwork. Um, Even later, you might see some musings on heaven or piety or whatever virtue that person or more realistically, their remaining relatives found to be particularly important. Yeah. Um, And that was about it for the first couple of centuries of this country. Okay. Uh, But then you get to the middle of the 20th century, and you have several prominent magazines start asking celebrities to write their own epitaphs. Oh, dear. Um, And you start to get Things like one of the earliest ones was, here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. (laughs) I'm going to go to hell. (laughs) Oh, uh, get ready because these are amazing. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. And as, you know, time goes on, more humor starts showing up in the graveyard. Great. Uh, You have put your ass on some class next to a Harley Davidson logo on a marker in Maui. Okay. This wasn't in my schedule book. (laughs) (laughs) On a headstone in Oregon. (laughs) Mood. (laughs) I know. I know. That one made me so happy. And my absolute favorite understatement of the year. This is indeed a true bummer. <laughs> from a gravestone in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. I mean, I've seen stuff like, I told you I was sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so good. And this move from plain or religious markers to something more humorous coincides with the evolution of death and funerals as a community project to a more individualized uh, ceremony or service uh, with the growth of the modern day funeral industry. Mm. And it's also argued that it's a uniquely 20th century issue that could not have happened at any other point in human history. 
because we are growing tired with being numbers on a list on a computer. We're being, we're tired of being seat warmers in a corporate office. Uh, We're tired of being so separate from our communities without being given license to express our individuality in any way Mm. that people are grabbing onto that sense of individuality in death that they don't have access to all the time in life. Okay, that's interesting. Right? Because, like, I can... I'm, I'm, I'm going through my head, like, I've seen classical epitaphs, and they mm-hmm. are always very, like, sentimental. But then I think about, like, historical graffiti. And it's like, you know, so-and-so fucked so-and-so here. Yeah. Or I climbed up here, it's real high. <laughs> I carved this and I'm really good at carving my name. Right. So like I, I, there's that through line, but you're right. I don't, I can't think of any classical epitaphs that closely mirror what you see today. The closest I can think of is a story I heard a few years ago about ancient dog burial sites in Greece that have been, um, excavated. But again, it wasn't humor. It was absolutely heartfelt, tragic expressions yeah. of grief Yeah, about the dog. Some of the dog names from ancient Assyria are pretty fucking great. I think pet names throughout human history have been it's that. Not, that's not the, the epitaphs with which they were buried. That's, you know... The dog is, you know, bites hard. And I'm like, that's so good. Mm -hmm. Good job, doggo. You had a job and you were good at it. Yeah. Or you found a job. You made a job for yourself and you did it. Good boy. What a good dog. I'm sorry. Anyone who doesn't want to just sit and cry about all of the dogs and cats that have been loved throughout human history shouldn't listen to this podcast because we're gonna cry about that we're, we're gonna cry about animals you know i lose my mind over animals with a job yep uh and then to quickly route around because i cannot stay on any one topic for any too for any too long <laughs> <laughs> jesus christ amanda we're good at what we do just remember people think we're funny just hold on why because they look at us and they go, well, if these two morons can do it, so Fair. can I. Um, but to get serious for a second, as we talk about modern changes to funerals and burials, we can't not talk about something that left a seismic shift on how people grieve and the rituals surrounding that grief. Mm. Um, so we are going to talk about the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, especially in 2020 when the Alpha variant was spreading and we didn't have vaccines and we really didn't know how to treat the cases that were crowding through the hospitals. The death toll was so high, I don't think our brains were capable of comprehending that. Yeah, after a while, it just, as callous as it sounded, it became numbers. Yeah. And funeral homes were super overcrowded and understaffed yeah and addition you know in addition to that overcrowding and over scheduling the need to social distance made traditional funerals impossible yeah 
and and places did their best. Like I have so much respect for anyone in the funeral industry in 2020. I cannot fathom. Oh, for my wedding mm-hmm. was peak pandemic, and I the changes that we had to make to that, and that was for a joyful occasion. Yeah, I cannot imagine. You know, uh, one of the changes that I saw, speaking of weddings, was funeral homes were partnering with wedding videographers to run virtual services at the highest quality that they could. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it also helped the wedding videographers who were suddenly completely out of a job. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, some funeral homes had cars and parking lots tune in to particular radio stations. Yeah. for the funeral service, a lot of Zoom memorial services yep. um, went to several of those myself. Um, they are not fun, believe it or not. And understandably, as people experienced this and were lacking whatever cultural death ritual they needed for closure with the COVID restrictions that were in place people started seeking less traditional means of closure. Um, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that doesn't offend people, but also lets my skepticism come through. Go for it. Um, People who say they are practicing spirit mediums reported an uptick in the number of people reaching out to connect with recently deceased loved ones. You know... That makes sense. And heartbreakingly, the largest increase was for connection with loved ones who passed as a result of a drug overdose. Mm. Um, Yeah. And I can't think of a better way to sum up the weirdness of death during COVID isolation or grief in general, whatever people were grieving Mm -hmm. during that, uh, than this quote. Um, rituals work by framing the ordinary as extraordinary, but if nothing feels ordinary, then nothing can feel extraordinary either. Um, which I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but it's true. No, you know, it's when you think back to lockdown, um, even for people who had a comparatively easy lockdown, which I, I don't, I don't know anyone who really did. Nothing felt real. I, I'm still, like, my sense of time has so been shifted mm-hmm. by that. I had a meltdown at work. Uh, not a real meltdown, but, like, I couldn't remember how old I was. I was chatting with some coworkers, and I was like, wait, hold on. How old am I? And this poor woman was like, all right, Corinne, what year were you born? Yeah. And I was like, uh, 1988. She's like, okay, this is how old you are. And I was like, I can't do math. But it's so weird, you know, you, on the one hand, you're having these milestones, but what is a death or what is a birthday or what is the passage of time when every day is the same and terrible? Yes, exactly. Um, And I think it's going to be interesting and absolutely heartbreaking in... A decade or so when the long-term studies looking at the effects of widespread delayed or arrested grief mm-hmm. start coming out. Yeah. I think 
there is a big cultural shift happening that I don't think we're going to recognize. It's going to take a while. We're going to need the distance to yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I went a little more historic than yeah. necessarily the folklore and stories that I usually do, but I found all of this really fascinating. So I hopefully people love it. I, I thought it was great. I'm going to be taking a, a more for, folkloric, not folkloric. Look, if Taylor Swift can misspell folklore in the advertisement for the Eras Tour movie coming to rent, <laughs> then I'm okay with it. It's folklore. <laughs> folklore and anthropology is the tag that I am going to be taking today. Pray for me, because I cannot speak. All right, so quick rundown of my sources. Uh, I found... Uh, this is in no particular order. Mm-hmm. Um, an article called "Them Owls Know: Pretending Death in Yeah, Pretending Death in Later Nineteenth and Early Twentieth Century England" from the journal Folklore. Um, Folklore. Uh, <laughs> this is rude. Uh, anyway, I, I accessed that off of JSTOR. Uh, I found the text uh, "Medieval Folklore, Volume One: An Encyclopedia of Myths, Legends, Tales, Beliefs, and Customs." Uh, an essay from Aeon.co, a Rapid Urbanization is Stoking Paranormal Anxieties in China. Oh. And last but not least, Vampire Blood and Devilish Owls, Old Polish Death Customs and Superstitions, which is an article from culture.pl. Ooh, I'm excited. The art, oh my gosh, I, I found an urban legend in the Chinese article. Uh-huh. And by Chinese, I mean it is about China. I, I can't read Chinese. I took four semesters. So, anyway... Um, so a lot of this actually kicked off. I was at the library picking up a book on fabric and textile history because that's As my you do. current hyperfixation. I mean, I'm currently reading a book about the history of eyeliner, yeah. so no judgment. It's all good. So I found that medieval folklore encyclopedia and I was like, oh, hell yes. I have discovered a gold mine. Indeed. Great. Um, downside. I only found volume one and the index is in volume two. Okay. Yeah. Womp, womp, womp. So I didn't actually get to use this as much as I wanted to because it's so dense and it's really hard to skim. But uh, while skimming for that pertinent information, I came across a really cool tidbit about the Black Death. Oh. Because that's awesome. To quote the book, some of the best known representations of the Black Death actually center around the phenomenon of the Danse Macabre, or the Dance of Death. Right. And, according to scholars, the dance macabre was intended to scare off disease, and whomever was leading the dance would always be dressed as death itself. Interesting. Um, and some historians actually think that this was partially inspired by the fact that certain variants of the plague, specifically bubonic, because it's also uh, pneumoniac and septicemic. Right. And they all have different varying levels of, this gonna fucking kill you. Yeah, it was a terrifying time to be a yeah. human being. But the bubonic plague specifically could cause neurological damage if you happened to survive it. Right. Makes sense. Uh, that is true of a lot of pandemics uh-huh. throughout history. Anyway, they believe that this neurological damage could cause, quote unquote, choreomania that the Dance Macabre was modeled after. 
So it was a symptom of those neurological problems. Uh-huh. Now, and this is just like, this was a small tidbit. I did not research into this any further, uh, but it is something I would love to dig into more. Same. Very cool. Um, anyway, we are now going to go skip forward into time and look at some superstitions that were documented in Victorian and Edwardian England as recorded by early folklorists. Oh, this is going to be wild. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, content warning, because we were talking about people trying to predict whether or not their children are going to live long lives. Because again, infant mortality rates were bonkers. (laughs) Um, Babies born with a blue mark on their nose were doomed to die by drowning. Lovely. Uh-huh. Okay. Conversely, babies who were born with a call around their face, which is, you know, part of the amniotic sac, right. were safe to never die by drowning. You could also sell the call to someone else and that would transfer that you're not going to die by drowning. Interesting. Which got very popular during naval wars. You know, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, also, babies that didn't cry at their baptism were said to be fated to die early. Which is a very much more grim version of the modern belief that, you know, crying is the devil leaving you. Right. Because, like, my mom swears that if I had not hollered, she would have pinched me. Because my grandfather definitely would have. Wow. I mean, my grandfather had been dead for, like, a year. I mean, I was just a colicky baby. I was gonna cry. Yeah. Uh, Anyway. So that's some of the ones around Bebe's. And then there are just, there are so many verbs. That are heralds of death. Like, so many. You know, birds are really creepy dinosaurs. Um, So, like, magpies were a big one in Victorian Mm -hmm. England. Uh, And that's since kind of shifted. A lot of these superstitions have shifted from, like, you gonna die to you gonna have bad luck. So magpies are still considered, like, oh, that's unlucky. Poor little birds. Um, I know. It's mean. Magpies are just clever little corvids. I love corvids. I love corvids. I, you know, I don't blame people for looking at magpies and going, not a fucking gen. Yeah. Because they will steal all of your shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, another one is screech owls. Screech owls are bad luck. Uh, if you hear them hooting, you're going to die. And I am so willing to incorporate that into my personal mythologies. Because, like, have you ever met a screech owl? Yeah. They are two ounces of fury. They are. They want you to die. Yes. I don't know that they want you to die any more than a lot of birds of prey. But they're so small and so angry about it. Yes. The wanting is just stronger. I look at them and I'm like, that fucker hates me. I look at a red-tailed hawk and I'm like, oh, you're so majestic. See, pretty baby. I guess I just assume that smaller versions of animals all want me dead because I lived with the cat, Mrs. Hudson, <laughs> for so many years. And that little six pound animal was willing death upon so many people mm-hmm. constantly. I had a friend with a Yorkie that hated me. Mm-hmm. I had a friend with a Chihuahua that hated me. Small animals don't like me. And as someone who got to interact with a lot of small animals at the zoo, I just, the screech owls wanted me dead. Yep. I fully believe that they are a death omen. 
And, you know, I'm even going to put that on small children because now (laughs) having a child who can make full sentences, I am never judging a horror movie script for having parents listen to their kids say something and not assume something paranormal is happening because that's just how kids are. Mm -hmm. Like on freaking Halloween night, sitting on the porch eating some of his candy, my son just goes, the guests are coming soon. The ones who follow your song and they won't leave. <laughs> My child, what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> I, the fact that you think that you could have a child who's not into creepy crawly shit. I mean, fair. Is baffling to me. Yeah, he's moved on from his obsession about bacteria. Well, no, he still loves his bacteria and viruses. And the chapter about Archaea is his comfort read in his big book of microbes. But he's expanded oh boy. his uh, love of biology to carnivorous plants. Great. Um, the sundew is his favorite. Awesome. He's a perfectly normal child. Mm-hmm. He's four. I know the kinds of things that I was obsessed with as a child. I'm not judging your kid. Because my mother did not murder me in all of my strange hyperfixations growing up. So I have to believe no i actually love it because i get to learn all sorts of fun facts yeah anyway anyway so uh last one from victorian edwardian period uh this is one that i had heard of before and i thought was made up uh so on saint mark's eve which is april 24th my mom and dad's birthday no um people who stand vigil i can't that was hard to say vigil Mm -hmm. in a churchyard are able to see the spirits of all the people in the community who are doomed to die in the coming year. Lovely. Um, yeah, and like I said, I was delighted to learn this is a real thing. It was actually a plot point in The Raven Boys by Maggie Stiefvater. Uh-huh. And I was like, is, is that a real thing, or did she make that up? No, it's, it's actually freaking real. But, like, at the same time, if you were one of the people going to the churchyard to stand vigil, like, people did not fucking trust you. That's divination and witchcraft, and like, ah. Also, I don't want you walking around giving me weird looks the rest of this year. What does it mean? (laughs) Right? Uh, And so that's just a smattering of some of the beliefs that you can find in the late 19th century, early 20th century in England. Uh, As we were discussing, people were still very intimately familiar with death. Um, It happened at home with two people across all age groups. And the infant mortality rate in Victorian England specifically was bat shit especially in urban environments i believe that oh gosh i'm trying to remember where i i think it was another podcast that went through the various um health issues that the victorian urban environment engendered engendered for pregnant women and uh, pregnant postpartum women and infants it's wild yeah um anyway poland actually has some very similar superstitions surrounding death as i discovered when i was reading that vampire blood and devilish owls article uh especially owls they, they still do be death omens that they do be um but they also had some superstitions that are not ones that i was familiar with Mm-hmm. Like, in some ways, I can say, like, I can look at these things and be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or, like, I see echoes of that in the culture in which I was raised. Um, but in Poland, the 
Wind whistling is the cries of people who've committed suicide. I have heard that one before, I think in a fantasy book somewhere. Sounds about right. Um, Also, the dead should be buried with some of their favorite things. Like, not valuable, reusable things, like, you know, a straight razor, anything that could be gifted onto someone else, but things like uh, vodka or cigarettes. Uh, Because, you know, anything that they might crave and that would inspire them to come back and haunt their families. (laughs) I'm wondering how much of that moved on to Germany culturally because i remember when my dad died people on my mom's side of the family who are very 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 german uh-huh. just so german were insistent that we put a tin of his favorite chewing tobacco in his suit pocket in the casket makes sense like that was Imperative number one. Imperative number two was to make sure that his socks were not boring because he never in his life wore a pair of socks that did not have some sort of obnoxious pattern. That actually gets into... Oh! Uh, for the love of God, make sure that when you are burying your loved ones, you put them in exactly the outfit that they would have wanted. Because if they are not happy with their burial outfit, they are going to come back and they are going to haunt your ass. I mean, I absolutely would. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Can I tell you about what we did? When my grandmother was mm-hmm. planning her funeral, because she was able to do that. Right. She was trying to decide what outfit she wanted to be buried in. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, you know, like going through outfits with her. And she's like, okay, well, what about this one? He was like, okay, no, mom, lay down, cross your hands, let's, let's give you a rose. We were really dusted out. Yes. Actual things that happened in my family. I believe it. I was like, father. He was like, what? She thought it was funny. And I'm like, oh my God, dad. What the fuck? Yeah. You know, funeral preparations. and, And this is me just completely pulling things out of thin air based on how I have seen people cope with grief Mm -hmm. um, and how I've coped with it or not myself. Mood. Um, You know, when I see superstitions like that, making sure they have something that's their favorite, making sure that they have the clothes that they would want to wear, it almost feels more like a way to make sure culturally you are thinking about that person as they were alive Mm -hmm. as you're preparing the death so that you don't i guess so your memories don't stick with that the last image what was kind of interesting in the article about these polish traditions is a lot of the time you are trying to avoid the ghost coming back because it's lonely and it wants company and once one person dies you're going to have a cascade of deaths if you are not preventing them from coming back and calling out to people and inviting them to, you know, hey, come join me in the afterlife, bro. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, that that's another one where psychologically, I wonder if those things came about because if you are grieving somebody and you are thinking of them in their final moments and you are mm-hmm. remembering them 
as a corpse, I can see that dragging your own mental health down. And I can see people noticing. Yeah. You know, either someone dying soon after their spouse because they let, you know, their own health starts to deteriorate or someone taking their own life because they can't cope with it. And so I'm wondering if those traditions came about because people noticed the deaths adding up yeah and going okay you know four people died in this family after so and so passed this family made sure that they did yeah all of these things and they're feeling better but i wonder how much of it was just psychologically if you are planning a funeral with the deceased's preferences in mind you are thinking of that person that you loved as you loved them yeah i'm Unfortunately, the article that I read doesn't go... Neither of the articles I read. Oh, because I'm pulling this completely out of my ass, Corinne. What what I'm saying is, this is interesting. I can't have anything (laughs) that I can say on this because I don't have any fucking research on it. Yeah. Uh, But I'm sure that exists. Uh, And last but not least, we are jumping forward to the present day. Oh, ho, ho. So, uh, would you guess that rural or urban areas have more superstitions surrounding death? Like, just... Off the top of your head. So the super elitist part of my brain says, obviously, the rural communities have more superstitions about Mm -hmm. death because we're enlightened urbanites. But I know that that's going to be false because you set me up for this. (laughs) (laughs) You're thinking exactly the same way that um, early Victorian folklorists Mm -hmm. often framed their writings. Anyway, in modern day China, at least, it is very much urban centers who have far more superstitions about death, who are more afraid of death. Um, people who live in, like, the large urban centers of China, we're, ta- we're talking Shanghai, we're talking Hong Kong, Guangzhou, all those big major centers, they will tell you that ghosts are a problem. Yes. And yes, I did hear that in Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, if someone dies in their home or their apartment, it might go onto a registry and will become available at lower than market cost because it do be haunted. It's definitely bad luck. Uh, and there is... In this economy, I will have a ghost roommate. Well, no, you might not after you hear this particular <laughs> urban legend. Um, the author of the article, uh, Rapid Urbanization is Stoking Paranormal Anxieties in China, recorded this. Uh, someone he heard it from was in Hong Kong. So a little lady lived in her apartment all alone. Her family was not able to visit her. They were either living abroad or had passed on. Um, One day she took a really bad fall. Could not get up. And unfortunately she did pass away. Um, And later, once the smell became a problem, they discovered her body. Uh, She was buried. The apartment was cleaned. And it was put back on the market at a slightly lower price. um, But not super low because her death was not a murder or a suicide. So it did not get added to the haunted homes registry. Oh. Uh, later, a young student, super stoked because she has just found a very affordable apartment in the city, moves in. Uh, so she starts decorating her new place. She's putting up flowers on the balcony, like some hung on the hooks from like the apartment up above mm-hmm. near balcony. And it's great. And then her first night in the new home, she has a dream about a blurry looking old woman. And the dreams continue. And they keep happening. And the old woman starts talking to her. Uh Uh-huh. 
Uh, eventually, one night, she awakens from these dreams, and she can still hear the little old woman's voice asking her, when are you going to come visit me? So. Ma'am, I'm right here. The student decides to go visit by walking out onto her balcony, climbing onto the step stool she uses to hang uh, water her hanging plants, and steps into the void. Uh, this death is ruled suicide. So the landlord has to reduce the rent by like 30% because the, the apartment is, is registered as haunted now. Huh. Um, and there is a real stigma around death in urban China, kind of similar to how it is here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, city dwellers are very uncomfortable around the idea of death because it does happen in hospitals. It very rarely happens at home. Um, right. You are legally required to send your body to a funeral home in large urban centers. Yes. In rural China, it's much more common. The funerals are done at home. They actually have special refrigerated caskets so people can come in for viewings. Um, and you don't do that in China. Or not in the large cities in China. Right. Pardon. Um, so cemeteries, funeral homes, crematories, they are all pushed to the outskirts of these major cities. Uh, the author was talking about it took him two hours to get to the largest funeral or largest cemetery in Shanghai. You know, like from city center. Right. Uh, and in fact, uh, the people who work in the funeral funerary industry are severely curtailed in how they can even advertise their services. Uh, in Hong Kong, there are specific levels of licenses, kind of depending on when you became a funeral uh, industry person. There's words for that. Mortician. That's the one. I got there. Uh, so depending on the license that they receive, they can't even use the word funeral in their name or like display caskets or anything. Interesting. Because it makes people uncomfortable. So they have the right to legislate against that. Uh, and according to one report, there are a whopping seven licensed funeral parlors in the city of Hong Kong. Into, uh, into uh, 2022, which had a population at the time of 7.4 million. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to imagine, is it, are they centered on, you know, in one specific neighborhood? Are so they, some of them on the outer islands? Like, what is... Everything gets pushed to the outskirts, from what I understand. Yeah. Obviously, I don't have, like, a map, so I can't be like, oh, yes, there's one here, one here, one here. Um, it's really interesting. One of the things they were talking about is um, after funerals, you know, if you, if you attend one, you have to balance the, the yin and yang energies. Mm-hmm. So you need warmth. And one of the traditions is to actually step over a fire when you are leaving the funeral to kind of like rebalance your own energies post-funeral. Interesting. But it, it really did remind me very much of when I was reading Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and how we have sanitized death so much in our own culture. And I believe and you know, gosh, again, this year's been rough and I have found several i guess death positive accounts to follow mm-hmm. um and personally i am of the belief that talking about death and grief is a necessity mm-hmm. to move past yes that grief um and i don't think at least here in the states that is given 
any sort of priority. Yeah. Um. But, uh, yeah, that's actually my research. It was very, very interesting to, to go down these little rabbit holes. Yeah, I, again, I had a lot of fun with this one. Like, it's a tough topic, but it's so interesting to see where we all kind of overlap Mm -hmm. for something that, as the New England primer will tell you, comes for us all. It do. (laughs) It do do that. Um, And uh, on a couple of lighter notes... Uh, because this this episode had some heavy topics for as much as we joked. Uh, number one, I am a terrible person, and for recording this episode, I definitely put on my perfume from Sucrebel called Embalming Fluid. Amanda. Yes? Amanda, why? Um, because I kept myself from putting it on for my grandma's funeral. <laughs> you know what? Fair and valid. Fair so. and valid. Okay. Not the sense I was expecting right there. <laughs> Not gonna lie. <sighs> Just saying. Um, and if anyone needs a good romance book to sit and... Yes. Yes, right? Yes. To sit and, like, just kind of kick your feet giddily. Uh, morbidly yours. So good. Amanda texted me about this. And I'm not going to lie, I read it in, I want to say, five hours. Oh, yeah. You just, can't like, put it down. sat down and I was like, Hunter, leave me alone, I'm reading. Yeah, it's, you know, an American move. The female main character is an American woman who moves to Ireland because reasons, uh, plot-relevant reasons, and moves in next door to a funeral home where the very attractive male main character is the funeral home director and mortician. Yes. And it is, it handles the topic of grief beautifully. And I literally have not squealed out loud. It's so, so much. It's not weird to say, but it is wildly adorable it's so cute uh there is smut in it it's spicy yeah so be aware but it is just so cute it's so cute so cute and i just wanted to throw that out there no totally fair and valid (laughs) i'm glad you brought that up so cute Uh, Mm ugh yeah anyway i think that's us yeah uh, so thanks everyone for listening. Um, I hope your holiday season is going wonderfully. Um, and avoid them ghosts. Yep. Do what you can. You know, it, make sure you know what clothes people close to you want to be buried in. Yep. That's a perfectly normal conversation to have with your relatives this holiday season. <laughs> when you guys are sitting around the table for dinner, say, hey, what do you want to be buried in? I need to know. Um, no one will think you're weird. It will not disrupt your holiday dinner. <laughs> actually crying right now because I'm laughing so hard, y'all.
can't. I can't. All right. Again, thank you, everyone. Um, Have a great new year. Um, And you'll hear from us again in 2024, which is wild. So, (laughs) yeah. Uh, Sweet dreams and caffeinated nightmares, everyone. Good night. Thank you for listening to Graveyard Coffee Talk. Our theme music is Pretty Little Dead Girls by Sean and McGuire, copyright 2006 and used with permission. Our cover art is by Kyle Welsh. If you want to keep the chat going, please visit our website at graveyardcoffeetalk.com for transcripts, episode notes, and more. Follow us on Instagram at graveyardcoffeetalkpod or on Twitter at talkgraveyard. They say she's out there on the hill They say she's looking for a